Holy Spirit asks that you would help us know how that applies to our lives and use the words I'm going to say these next few minutes, the thoughts we're going to think to help us know how we can walk in your ways, get closer to you and experience you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was writing my dissertation in graduate school, I did a lot of research that required me to read lots of microfilm of 16th century political pamphlets and tracts and all kinds of stuff. And some of the things I read looked like this. Don't even try. Don't even try. It's very, reading that, eight, it's very hard to read. Reading that for eight hours a day makes you grouchy and weird. That's why my dissertation, which started as a cool project, ended up being titled The Persistence of Memory, Reactionary Politics, Sexual Heresy, and Catholic Nostalgia in English Literature, 1533 to 1667. I have no idea what that means. But copies are available in the lobby if you want one. Now, aside from the strange letters, what makes that text so hard to read is that there's not enough space between the words and it has no margins on the side. And some of the texts, they had great stuff, really interesting stuff in them, but I could not enjoy them because there were too many letters and not enough space. You so know what's coming next, don't you? Right? Does your life ever feel like that picture? Too many things, many of them good, but just not enough margin. Too much time at work, so we have no margin in our schedule. Too many relationships to manage, and so we have no emotional margin. We've spent to the max, so we have no financial margin. Too many commitments. The kids have too many activities, so we have no physical margin. We're exhausted. We'll be doing a sermon series, we'll be doing a sermon series for the next couple of weeks called Factory Reset, which is, you know how on your smartphone or your computer it gets all messed up because of too many apps or cookies or viruses or something like that, and you just need to reset it? Well, it's the same with us. Because of our culture, we get all messed up in a variety of ways, and we just need to be reset by our maker. And in the story that Rosalind just read, God, God re resets the Israelites to keep them from all their frantic efforts to get more and more and more and more and have no margin in their life. And he forces them to have space and rest and margin so that they have more time, more energy, more, more enjoyment of life, and most importantly, a closer connection to God. Now, the background for this story is they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God is delivering them to the promised land. And he has provided for them all the way. He parted the Red Sea. He provided water from a stone when they were thirsty. And now they're hungry. And so God provides this food called manna, which in Hebrew literally means what is it or what's it. And and because they didn't understand, like, what's it? I love that. That's just, go eat the what's it. Um, it. Provided the what's it and some quail for meat. But, and here's the catch, only just enough for one day. Except on the sixth day, he provided a double portion so they can take a day off and have a Sabbath and margin. And he tells them, only collect what you need. But some people ignore that and they try to collect more and they try to hoard it. And the result is it gets maggots and it stinks. Now, preachers love to make metaphors out of texts like this, right? If you're preaching on the parting of the Red Sea, you ask some question like, what's your Red Sea? So, what are your maggots? Right? Where has your frantic effort to have more and more, whether it's stuff or activities or money or whatever it is, where is that wrecking your life? If it's more hours at work or material possessions, commitments, whatever it is, where is it wrecking your life? Not because those things are bad. The manna was good. But because too much of it goes bad. 
Now, I think sometimes we can read a text like this, and we can be tempted, I think, because it seems so far away, to think, man, I mean, why'd they do God told them not to try to hoard it, not to try to get more. They, you know, you'd have to be the village idiot to ignore it. Thank goodness we don't ignore God that way today. Right. A couple months ago, a couple came to talk because they were having problems in their marriage. But they didn't know quite how to get started. So I said, let me help you get started. I'll guess at some stuff, and you tell me if any of this applies. So I said, let me guess. You have a couple of kids, and they each have lots of activities that you think they need in order to be well-rounded and get into college. So you're constantly driving them everywhere, and they're busy, and you're busy, right? And, and on top of that, you've, you've bought a house that you can just barely afford, plus a bunch of other luxury items. So you're maxed out financially. That creates stress. So you're working harder and longer, hopefully to make more money or maybe get a promotion. By this time, they were both laughing. So I knew I was on a roll. So I just kept going. And I said, and your kids are stressed out about school, trying to get great grades so that they can go to a good college, so that they can live this American dream because it's working out so well for the two of you right now. Be, you know, and so they're up late at night, which means that you two never get any time together without them, and you haven't had a date night in who knows when. You can't remember the last time you had a great conversation together. Let's not even talk about sex. And you're frustrated that you feel so bad because everyone is telling you that you're living the dream. They both started to laugh, and the guy said, oh, I was hoping we'd be more original than that. And I said, now, for all the theological talk about original sin, I've never seen an original one yet. They've all been done before. Now, all those things in their life were good things. There's just too many of them. And that becomes destructive. The old word for that is gluttony. And it wrecks our lives. There's a book called Deep Economy that cites numerous studies, lots of different universities, that show that the more we get, not just in terms of stuff or money, but commitments and activities and all kinds of stuff, after the basics are met, the more we get, the less happy we get. We have the highest GDP in the world, but we rank 13th in terms of happiness scores. Studies done at Carnegie Mellon show that increase in income usually means a decrease in meaningful friendships that has a corresponding decrease in happiness scores. Children of affluent suburbs are more likely to be depressed than children living in inner city poverty. Now, I'm not saying poverty is good, it's terrible. But something's got to be going wrong in the suburbs if our kids who have so much are so depressed about it. More is not always better. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to have aspirations. No, aspirations are good. I am not saying working hard is wrong. Nope, the Israelites had to work. I'm saying there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Back to my opening metaphor of the books. It's not that we have to just wipe all the letters off and get rid of everything in our lives so that our lives look like this. You know, a blank page. That, that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's about balance and leaving ourselves some financial, emotional, spiritual margin so that we go from this to something that looks more like that. Space, balance, time. And this text shows us how we can do that. And it comes down to this one thing. Just one point today, not three, just one point today, but don't get excited. It's a long point, so you're not getting out early, okay? <laughs> and here's the one thing. In order to have margin, space, balance, rest in our lives. Aren't those great words? Some of you are probably thinking rest. How cruel of you to bring it up, right? In order to have that, we need one thing. We need to trust that God will provide. That's it. That simple and that hard. The problem with the Israelites is they don't trust God to provide, so they hoard, right? The story starts with them saying this, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, 
There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. The Hebrew word there is stuffed ourselves till we overflowed. Gross. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Oscar goes to the Israelites, right? A little melodramatic, don't you think? Later in the text, they say this. We, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Oh, wasn't Egypt great? We had everything and so much of it. There was just one tiny, small little problem with Egypt, hardly worth mentioning, really. But what was it? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Right? Our too much of everything makes us slaves to work, slaves to our finances, slaves to our schedule. And at the root of it all is we do not trust God to provide for us financially if we're not workaholics, to provide for us relationally if we stop having dozens of acquaintances and instead focus on some good friends, provide for our kids' future if we limit their activities. We don't trust God to provide, and so we hoard and hang on and try to get more and more and more. I recently read that people who circle looking for a better parking spot actually end up wasting more time and usually end up walking farther than people who just go to the next available parking spot, right? Which I think is a particularly poignant example for any of us who spent any time in the mall last month. Right? I mean, ever notice how some people will just stop and wait for the family with 10 kids and 35 packages to strap everyone in and slowly pull the minivan out of the parking spot? Meanwhile, a line of cars stacks up behind them that goes all the way to Cleelum, right? When if they would just go a little bit farther, there's another parking spot and everyone else could find one too. Can I have an amen? amen. Scarcity mentality breeds hoarding. But God's economy is not one of scarcity. God's economy is one of abundance. Jesus took five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people with it. In this text, God provides manna for them every single day, and everyone had enough. We can rest. We don't have to always be getting more money, more hours of work, more accolades, more this, more this, more this. We don't always have to be doing that because God will provide for us financially, relationally, spiritually, every way you can think of. And this is at the heart of what Sabbath is all about. Sabbath shows us that our lives are not secured by us working harder and harder. God will provide even if we take some time off, even if we're not always grabbing for more. When we trust that God will provide, we don't have to be grabbing for more. We can rest knowing that he will provide, maybe not for all of our wants, but for our needs. And yeah, we may not rise as high up the corporate ladder if we're not workaholics. I've known people who have willingly taken pay cuts in exchange for for more hours off, right? And that's a sacrifice, but what they get is time, space, time to connect to God, have good friendships, have a better family life. If we trust that God will provide. And, and here's the catch, this is the big catch, trust that God will provide and trust him on a daily basis. The Israelites can't store it up. They can't just keep getting more and more. It goes bad. They have to lean on God every day, trusting that he's going to provide for them day in, day out. That's why Jesus, thinking of this passage, teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. And if you heard me say this before, Jesus says daily bread, not monthly cake. Okay? In other words, it's what we need, maybe not everything that we think we want, but that's better. You know, the Israelites thought they wanted leeks and garlic and onions and all that, but here's the thing. They're trying to get to the promised land. If they spend a bunch of time growing onions... That's going to kind of trip them up, get into the promised land. Manna and quail, pretty convenient. We cannot get to the promised land. Peace, joy, 
adventure, all of that if, with all of our stuff, carrying all of our stuff with us. So God gives us what we need and he gives it to us daily. And we hate this, don't we? We just hate this. We, we want God to just download everything we need all at once so that we don't have to, well, turn to him every day. Right? My daughter recently came home from church after we'd had communion. And she said, you know the bread that you break at communion? And I said, yeah. She said, is that Velcroed together? Like, I don't know where that came from. And I said, no. And she said, what? You mean you have to go to the store over and over again to get new bread every single time you want to do communion? You should just get a Velcro one and find a way to hide the sound when you unzip it. <laughs> what? Like pastor's kids are so spiritual, right? Always thinking how the church can do things better. Right? I mean, I sort of think that would take something away from communion, don't you? you know, <laughs> but that's kind of what we want, isn't it? Out of God, this convenient Velcro God that just gives us everything we want so we don't have to go back over and over and over again. But that's the point. He wants to keep us coming back to him because relationships aren't built just once. They're built over time. You know, if God were to zap me today and give me everything I needed for the rest of my life, I would be so deeply grateful to him for a week, 10 days tops. And then not needing him, I would not think of him again. And that's not real relationship. So God forces us to go to him daily and find that he provides and he is our rest, he is our joy, he is the one that makes life worth living. I know a man who felt called to leave his job for two reasons. One, he wanted more time with his family. Second, he felt God nudging him to go plant a church. Problem was it would mean a significant loss of income, which is bad enough, but worse still, they were on the list for adoption and if your income drops, that can affect the adoption. But they really felt like God was going to provide. On their last Sunday at their old church, before they went to plant the new one, a couple came up to them and said, God has been nudging us to give you a stock gift. And this guy said, well, thank you, thinking it was some small amount. Turns out it was the exact amount that he would need that made the difference between what he would make in the old job and what he would make in the new job. And it would fill that delta long enough for the adoption to go through. God provided. Now, you might ask, well, what happens when the stock gift runs out? That's not the point. It wasn't the stock gift that helped him, that saved him. It was God. And, and when it runs out, there'll be something else. But they're going to have to trust him daily. And that's given them a sense of peace, knowing that God is going to provide. They've seen evidence that he does that. It feels like an adventure because God of the universe is talking to them, working with them. It's relieved some of their anxiety because they know that God will provide. They are finding their peace. They are finding their joy, not in more and more stuff, more and more commitments, more and more activities, more and more money. No, no, no. They're finding their peace and their joy in Jesus. And that's really the ultimate point of this manna story, that real joy, real peace is found in relationship with Jesus and trusting him. In the New Testament, Jesus points this out. He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am this manna. Jesus is born in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He's laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough. I mean, you don't have to be an English major who wrote a dissertation to figure this out. Jesus is saying, I am what will sustain you. I am what will give your life meaning and joy. Not the many, many things you think will do it, but then we're out in a month and you're on to something else. Okay, so if trusting God to provide is the key to getting Sabbath, margin, rest, space, all of that. How do we learn then to be people who trust that God provides? 
How do we become more trusting people? Well, God gives us three training exercises that help us learn to trust him. And the first is this, tithe. Give at least 10% of your income to the church you're a part of to be part of God's rescue mission, and you will discover two things. One, God provides for your needs, and two, you can be happy on less than you thought you needed to be happy. The best way to prove to yourself that God exists is to tithe for a year. Second training exercise, fast. And I talked about that uh, fasting this summer. Fasting is not dieting. It's not a New Year's resolution kind of a thing, right? I'll fast and maybe God will like that too. No, no, no. Fasting is going, out, going without something natural in order to experience something supernatural. And most people who fast will tell you that when you fast and use the time you would have spent eating to connect to God, you just go to a whole deeper spiritual place. And what we find is God meets us and sustains us and gives us energy. He provides. Someone told me that he once told his family that he was going to fast for a day, and his five-year-old daughter knew that, what that was, and she said, you can't go without food, you'll die. So he said, no, I won't. Look at all the people in the Bible. They fasted. And she said, yeah, and they died. <laughs> okay, you won't die. What you will find is God meets you in those moments and sustains you, and he provides. Tithe, fast, and then the third thing that trains us to be, trust God is, 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 is keep the Sabbath holy which means more than just taking a day off to sit down on the couch and, you know, with the remote and ESPN. That too, that can be good. But Sabbath is also about doing those things that restore our soul. Prayer, worship, time of solitude, connect with friends and family, nature. Sabbath also shows us that if we take time off, the world will not fall apart, that our lives are held together, not by our frantic efforts to get more, but by God. Fast tithe Sabbath. Three spiritual exercises that show us that God provides and build trust. And one other thing they do, all three of them show us that sometimes we are actually happier with less. So, here's the homework for this week. Go home and cut something out. Cut out a commitment. Don't cut out the ones that Jesus has asked you to do, but chances are you've made a commitment that he has not asked you to do. Go to prayer, get the advice of others, figure out which one it is, cut it out. Cut back on your spending so that you can live below your means. There is such freedom in that because you don't always worry about money. Limit your kids' activities. I know this is hard. My wife and I do this, though, because here's the thing. We are teaching them how to choose from a list of good options and not try to do it all. It's a life skill they're going to need. Whatever it is, cut something out to create freedom and space in your life. Several years ago at Christmas, my mom decided that we all had enough stuff and she'd had enough going to the mall. So she fasted from shopping and instead, the only gift she gave us was a photo album that she'd made. And it wasn't one of those fancy photo albums either. You know, the kind I'm talking about where you draw little pictures of bunnies and hearts and kittens and write notes and all that stuff. Those are fine. But this was the no-frills, basic Christmas. So all my mom did was took a bunch of pictures and just taped them down one right after the other in a book and just kind of folded them all together in a notebook. Very basic. It's one of the best gifts I ever got. I mean, it gives me this chronology of the people and the events that have made my life meaningful. My mom chose each picture very carefully. She thought it out. I mean, for instance, if there was a great picture of some great event, but there was an ex-girlfriend in it, my mom lovingly cut the girlfriend out of the picture. Right? So thoughtful, so considerate on my mom's part, right? 
It's also provided all kinds of laughs for all kinds of people because, you know, family pictures, they can be weird, you know, sort of like this one right there. Like, we're all looking, I mean, like, what are we looking at? Right? Only my mom is looking at the camera, right? It's like, the spaceship is coming. You know, we're ready. Or how about this one of me in college? I'm there on the right. What fashion sense? Please take that one down. Down. There we go. Okay. Right. On several occasions, my wife has actually loaned this photo album to some of the staff here so that whenever I need to be mocked, these pictures just magically show up. Like on my birthday, this year they made a placemat out of some of the best pictures. And this is hung up all over everyone's office. This is hung up. So whenever I go to their office, there it is. It's unnerving. It's creepy. This book has brought more laughter to more people than almost anything. And, is it gone? Take it away. (laughs) And it has given me a lot of joy because it is a reminder of the people and the events that have made my life meaningful. It has also, believe it or not, gotten me closer to God. You know why? Because when I'm discouraged, I flip through this photo album and I realize all the many, many ways God has been faithful to me throughout all of those years. Because my mom decided that we had enough and that what we really needed was a little bit more of less. And the result was space for God, for relationships, and all the stuff that really brings joy. See, there is such a thing as too much, and we all need a little bit of margin. And you see this everywhere in life. It's the space between words that give them their definition and their meaning. It's the little moments of silence between all the notes that make a symphony beautiful. If it was all notes... It'd just be noise. Our lives are a rhythm of inhaling and exhaling, taking in and letting go. That's how we live. That's how we thrive. And we belong to a God who will provide everything we need, relationally, financially, everything we need, which means we can cease our anxious toil to have more and more and more, the constant itinerary of desire, because we can rest in God's more than sufficiency. So go home, cut something out, get some margin, and discover how much more less really is. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to trust that you provide. And Lord, help us to live in that, get closer to you and find our joy in you and you alone so that we don't need all the things we think we need to be happy. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.